Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. Moje Domovina, part 2. In the previous episode, we covered a fair portion of the first six months or so of the Croatian War. And in this one, we'll cover the rest of it as well, as where exactly and also where exactly that left football before we move to the situation in Macedonia in the next episode, which will then be followed by a look at Yugoslavia, or at least what remained of it, in the following. But first, it's probably a good idea to explain exactly why our Croatian independence episodes are titled Moja Domovina, given that it won't necessarily mean anything to anyone not from in and around Croatia. 1991 was, of course, the end of Yugoslavia as we knew it, but it was also very much the end of an entire cultural scene, in many areas, but particularly in music. Many bands split because of a divide between members politically. For example, our old friends Zabranjeno Pushenje, they of the day Hase left, split in part because politics drove members apart. Moja Domovina would be the song that marks the divide between Yugoslav and Croatian music, as well as arguably marking the death of the Croatian new wave scene that dominated the 1980s. Recorded by Vatsky Bandade, the charity supergroup contained more or less everyone who was anyone, from folk singer Miso Kovac, to the jazz performer Oliver Dragievich, to newer stars like Dino Dvornik and Severina, as well as basically everyone who was anyone. And they created a song that, quite aside from being better than Do They Know It's Christmas, endures to this day as a bit of a national anthem for Croatia, and, unlike a certain band-aid song, wasn't covered a few times in the future by other band-aid groups to increasingly diminishing effects. With that explained, it's time to move back to the conflict itself and to the final geographical theatre, Dubrovnik. What we saw in the previous episode was a succession of theatres of war where things got pretty horrible, but also saw the JNA push the Croatian forces back without ever really threatening to land a hammer blow. Dubrovnik would be one of two parts of the war that would see the JNA's attempts to subdue Croatia hold below the water. Dubrovnik was a key location tactically for two reasons, both of which can be seen just from a cursory look at a map. Located just to the north of Montenegro and just to the east of Bosnia, it was about the only place in Croatia that could be attacked with forces from two sides, and to add to that, a quick win in Dubrovnik would allow the JNA to swiftly roll up the coast towards Split and take Dalmatia as a whole. Much like we saw in Pakrac prior to the war itself, this theatre was stirred up by wild lies in certain parts of the media, specifically that the Croats, in league with Kurdish mercenaries, were about to invade Montenegro and take the Bay of Kotor. Now, how exactly Kurdish mercenaries were meant to have gotten to Croatia from, you know, the border of Turkey and Iraq, was a bit of a mystery but it was an effective scare story, and soon after the war began in earnest, troops in Montenegro mobilised and, come 23rd of September 1991, 
an invasion of southern Dalmatia began, combined with a naval blockade of Dubrovnik itself. This was a difficult thing for Croatia to stop. Dubrovnik didn't really have much in the way of defences, had under 500 troops, most of which were new recruits and untrained, and as Dubrovnik didn't really have any military facilities, the city was low on arms. Croatia had to sneak additional troops and supplies into Dubrovnik, with the JNA already in place breathing down their necks. Eight days after the southern invasion began, Dubrovnik was enveloped, and the Yugoslav Air Force had taken out electricity and water supplies into the city. Until the end of the siege, Dubrovnik had to rely on water brought in from the local islands on boats. Croatia offered peace talks to Montenegro, as it was they who had invaded, but Milosevic intervened on their behalf and rejected peace without question. After all, the JNA were winning and soon after, were in a position to set the artillery on the city. Unfortunately for the JNA, unlike the carnage that was permitted in Vukovar, the international community were watching Dubrovnik like hawks. Once the JNA started blowing up historic buildings, the USA began to stir and demand they stop. Humanitarian aid, most famously through the Libertas convoy, began breaking the blockade and giving Croatia legitimacy given that international observers were travelling on Croatian boats to a Croatian city as part of a Croatian initiative to relieve suffering caused by the JNA. The JNA's response to this was, well, I think possibly what you'd expect given what we've learned from Vukovar and others in the previous episode, it was to simply blow up more old buildings and in doing so further undermine themselves. Ceasefire would eventually be agreed on the 7th of December, with over half of Dubrovnik's historic old town having been damaged in some way. The carnage itself was nothing compared to Vukovar, but whereas cameras and attention were never internationally turned on the town in the east, everyone knew about Dubrovnik, and, crucially, it shifted nations off the fence into seeing Croatia as the good guys, and Serbia slash Yugoslavia as the enemy. It may have been a military stalemate, but it was a massive PR defeat for Serbia and for Milosevic. The fi final theatre of war in this first stage was the Battle of the Barracks, which took place everywhere. As we've covered in a few episodes, ahead of the war, the JNA had made efforts to disarm Croatia wherever possible, and, unlike the forward planning of Slovenia, had managed to do so pretty successfully. Croatia, instead, had operated with a militarised arm of the police, which had gotten involved at Pokrac and elsewhere in the lead-up to the war. This numbered around 3,000 in total, with a reserve force of around three times that, but that reserve force didn't have any weapons. A month before the war began, Croatia set up an army, the ZNG, the Croatian National Guard, which eventually would become the full army. This would be set up of only around 8,000 troops, most of which were pulled from those police forces, with 40,000 in reserve. And, similarly to the previous setup, Croatia simply didn't have enough guns to arm them all. The JNA had around 20 times the troops available to them at 160,000, but that was 160,000 of often dubious commitment and organisation. 
many of whom would desert the army during conflict. Hence, the regular leaning upon the Kraina and other volunteer forces, whose morals were dubious, but whose commitment was not. In a way, this could be why the conflict was so messy. Croatian forces were fast expanding, but the organisation and infrastructure wasn't there at the start to actually make it an effective fighting force. While the Yugoslav forces were shrinking with low morale and reliant on volunteer bands of soldiers that were often little more than thugs. Hence, there was the necessity for the Croatian forces to arm themselves, get bases and get infrastructure, while politicians stalled for time and refrained di from directly poking the bear of the JNA in the hope that they would be more restrained and let the Kraina forces do all the heavy lifting, as opposed to Croatia finding itself in a total war against an enemy that massively outnumbered it. It took until early September for Tuchman to finally lose his patience and accept that the JNA weren't going to be neutral and weren't trying to maintain the peace, but instead were actually actively supporting Serb forces. And that is something that, to be fair, Tuchman really should have known and accepted long before he did. Plans to take JNA barracks in Croatia had been bounced around since late 1990, long before the war itself actually started. Step one of Croatia's plan was to take the JNA forces in Croatian hands. A mix of border posts, storage dumps and full-on barracks. Some had previously been attacked as a matter of course, for example in Gospic, where it was just part of a wider battle for the town. The Battle of the Barracks, as it became known itself, began on September the 14th with attacks at facilities around Gospic, around Zagreb and around Fukovar, which of course, would eventually lead into the full siege of the town covered in our last episode. By the time the JNA counterattacked on the 20th, over 60 facilities had already been taken by the Croats, with the biggest prize being that of Varazdin's barracks, with the unfortunate commander of the barracks, Vladimir Trifunovic, eventually finding himself convicted of war crimes in Croatia, due to the death of six people in the fighting, and also finding himself convicted of treason in Yugoslavia for having surrendered in the first place. You just can't win sometimes. The campaign itself was a near total success for Croatia, with Yugoslav forces serving only to delay or sabotage progress, examples being that the air force would often bomb capture facilities to hinder retrieval of arms, or the destruction of Bielovar's ammo depot by Milan Tepic, who single-handedly stayed behind while his troops retreated and then blew the depot with himself still inside. Barracks fell quickly, and those that didn't would see ceasefires arranged to get them out of barracks that were becoming difficult to defend in larger battles, such as Zadar. On the 22nd of November, all JNA forces were evacuated from barracks and out of Croatia after pressure from the international community on Tudjman to let those troops depart. Most of the facilities that were taken already were already in Croatian territory, but taking those facilities allowed the Croatian army to firstly meet its own needs for arms and then settle down and prepare for whatever was coming next. Where the JNA could, they left arms for Kraina forces, prolonging the war in Croatia. But come the end of 1991, the JNA were mostly out of Croatia altogether and a path to a sort of peace was open, in this case, the Vance plan. 
The situation at the end of 1991 was pretty dire for the JNA. They had been forced to back down from Dubrovnik under international pressure. They had been rebuffed from Zadar. Their sheer hell of Vukovar had completely stalled them in the east. And the general morale of Yugoslav forces was about as low as it could get. In came the United Nations. Cyrus Vance, former US Secretary of State, put together a mission and a plan to get a ceasefire implemented. The plan was simple. Wherever the forces, up en forces ended up at the end of 1991 would more or less be where the ceasefire lines would be drawn, with UN peacekeepers sent into regions to protect civilians. He schmoozed Milosevic first, who jumped at the plan, given that it meant his Yugoslavia could keep territorial gains and Milosevic guaranteed the Kraina forces would keep to it. Tudjman, always nervy about irritating the international community, also agreed to it, and come the start of 1992, it was implemented in what would be known as the Sarajevo Agreement, which was signed on the basis that it wouldn't be the final form of a peace plan, and, as such, before the ink was even dry, the Kraina were already in the mode of treating the plan as merely just sticking some white hats around the place while they got on with making themselves an actual proper nation with the Croats thinking that the UN would actually facilitate the return of the Kraina into Croatia. Five days after the plan was signed, the Yugoslav Air Force shot down a helicopter carrying European observers to the ceasefire, and it would be an ominous sign of how the Vance plan was going to go. If one looks at the Brioni Agreement between Slovenia, Croatia and Yugoslavia as essentially a deal cut between Slovenia and Milosevic that hung Croatia out to dry. The Vance plan can be seen as a deal cut between Croatia and Yugoslavia that hung the Kraina out to dry given the status of that issue, an issue which ultimately was a major cause of the entire war in the first place, was left not just unresolved but barely dealt with at all. Milosevic didn't have the Kraina in his pocket and their leader Milan Babic eventually ended up replaced by Goran Hadzic as Milosevic couldn't get Babic to provide any sort of endorsement to the plan. Furthermore, the Kraina forces were in places that were outside of the UN administered zones and refused to go back to where they were meant to be. And the UN forces often ended up being reduced to being almost observers as life in the Kraina continued around them in a state of war. All that had really happened was that the Vance plan had changed the war from Croatia versus the Yugoslavia and the Kraina to Croatia versus the Kraina. Furthermore, Croatia would get an endorsement and recognition from Germany in mid-December which would prompt the EU to do so as a whole. This would change the paradigm as well. A Croatia whose future was essentially settled and whose independence was recognised widely was the prompt for things to move to Bosnia which we'll come to in a couple of episodes' time. But with this first phase of the war in Croatia over, it's time to talk football, because in spite of everything that was going on, football was going on during the war of a sort. League and Cup domestic football wouldn't resume until February 1992, in part because of the war and in part because, well, the war ended in December slash January, and you can't really play football outside in Croatia in December and January. But Hajduk had qualified for the Cup Winners' Cup in the last Yugoslav season, and Dinamo, who weren't Dinamo for now, and I'm going to explain it in a minute, 
were in the UEFA Cup. So, in spite of actually being unable to play football because of the war, both had to have short European adventures. Hajduk would draw former chicken-killing buddies Spurs, win the home leg, which was hosted in Linz, before losing in London and going out 2-1 on aggregate. The club, formerly known as Dinamo, would have their home game against Trabzonspor in Austria as well, where they would lose 3-2 in Klagenfurt before a one-all draw in Turkey sealed their fate. Dinamo, who weren't Dinamo, would join 11 other clubs in the first high NL season in what would be a rush to get any football in. Unlike Slovenia, most of the clubs had a heritage, with four in the Yugoslav First League, four from the second, and then others from the third and fourth tier. Also, unlike Slovenia, teams couldn't necessarily play at home. For a start, there were four regions in the second tier, north, south, east and west. The eastern division itself was unable to take place entirely because of the war. So, let's meet our 12 first league sides and find out what the new ones to us have been doing in the past, which ones have changed names, and, hey, where they'll actually be playing. The contingent coming from the Yugoslav First League were, of course, led by Dinamo Zagreb, who, at this point, weren't going by the name Dinamo and had instead changed their name to Hask Gradansky Zagreb, an amalgamation of the two Zagreb giants that were dissolved at the end of World War II by Tito, Hask and Gradansky, and who, of course, Dinamo have no direct real link to. They changed to this name on Independence Day, likely sticking two fingers up in the direction of Belgrade while doing so. No one actually liked them being called Haskell Zagreb, and two years later they would change name again to Croatia Zagreb under pressure from Tudjman. No one would like that very much either, and they become Dinamo again in 2000, um, helped by the fact that Tudjman was no longer around to stop it. Hajduk, who were of course still in possession of the Yugoslav Cup, were present alongside Rijeka, who would add a H to their NK a couple of years later, and that would be that for their name changes. The final first league side would be Osijek. They, understandably, would be unable to host any home games at all this season, playing in Dekovo, Doni Miholac and Kuchevo throughout the season. The second league cohort would be led by NK Zagreb, who had won promotion to the Yugoslav First League for the 91-92 season, had Yugoslavia carried on. They would be joined by Sibalia. Sibalia are a team we've met on the timeline very recently, known by their former name of Dinamo Vinkovci and Sibali was the original name of the club when formed in 1919. Similarly to the Dinamo in Zagreb, Sibalia were reclaiming the name of a club that had been decommissioned by the communists post-World War II, and reclaiming the name that Vinkovci had went under in Roman times. Officially, the club were HNK Sibalia Vinkovci, but everyone just calls them Sibalia. They will play in Dekovo, Zagreb, Kakovec, and Posega, given that they were located a few miles to the south of Osijek. Sibinik were another playing away, but 
not far, with most of their home games in Split and its surrounds, with one game even being able to play, be played at home. Originally called Radnisko Sibnik, they became just Sibnik after World War II, and had had their best period during the 80s as regulars in the Yugoslav Second League. In terms of players from there that have popped up in the timeline, they are perhaps, most famously, the first club of Petar Nadevesa. Finally, for the second league cohort, Dubrovnik, who have a delightfully confusing history. In short, this Dubrovnik were formed as NK Yug in 1922, who then merged with another club and became Yug 1919. In the 50s, they merged with two other clubs to become NK Dubrovnik, then reverted back to NK Yug for a year, then merged with another local side in Gosk and became Gosk Yug. They would be in the second league for the majority of the 80s before renaming to HNK Dubrovnik 10 days before the start of the first Croatian season. Now eventually, Gosk will actually end up being reformed and merged with the remains of this club to become Gosk Dubrovnik, who occupy a space in the lower league of Croatia now. Confused? Don't blame you. They would host their games in Metkovic and in Blato on the island of Kochula. The last of the nomads this season would be Zadar, who, similarly to Sibinik, would get one game at home with the rest in and around Split. At this time called Zadar Komek, but not for long, they had a few appearances in the Yugoslav Second League to their name, but not many. The final of the name changes would be Inka Zaprasic. They had been set up in 1929 as Sava, then became NK Zaprasic until the 60s when they became Yugo Karamika Zaprasic, named after the local ceramics company. Once Croatia dropped the Yugo, the company became known as Inka, I-N-K-E-R, a portmanteau of Industria Karamika. And the club became Inca Zaprasic. And when Inca stopped being associated with the club in 2003, they just became Inter Zaprasic, which of course they remain to this day. And to be fair, I'm probably just going to refer to them as Inter Zaprasic going forward because Inca and Inter just sound far too similar for me to not get them mixed up all of the time. The final two clubs in the league will be there based on invites from the FA as opposed to merit. Radnik Velika Garica, now also just HNK Garica, currently in the first league, and Niretva were denied places, presumably as one was a Zagreb club in Garica and one was a Dubrovnik club, in favour of Vartex Varazin in the north and Istra in the west. Vartex had been founded in 1931 as Savia Varazin and then changed into Textilac in 1945 after the local textile industry, which became known as Vartex in 1958 to reflect the name of the main textile company in the town, Varazin Textile. Their peak was in 1961 when the club were runners-up to Vardar in the Yugoslav Cup, having knocked out Zelyesnikar and Hajduk on their way to the final. Come the end of the 1991 season, however, they were a mid-table third-tier side, but even that was well above Istra.
Now, the Easter story is automatically confusing because this Easter aren't the Easter that play in the High NL now, but they are a completely different, still existing club that just happen to have the same name. This Easter were founded in 1961, unlike the other Easter who were founded in 1964, in spite of that club actually being called Easter 1961. Prior to 1961, there were two clubs in Pula, Ulainik and Pula, who merged into NK Istra. To avoid, or to perhaps cause, confusion, the club now called Istra 1961 were formed in 1964 after some of the personnel behind Ulainik decided to revive that club. The NK Istra who did get into the first season of the High NL were middling in the fourth tier of Yugoslav football and only had a couple of last 16 appearances in the Yugoslav Cup to give them any sort of prominence at all. While the war in Croatia was far from over, the immediate future of Croatia as an independent nation had been secured. Where Slovenia managed to break free as a result of long-laid groundwork and vast incompetence from the JNA, Croatia had none of those advantages. For much of the six months between declaring independence and the introduction of the Mance plan, many had seen Croatia as the bad guys, forcing Yugoslavia to tear itself apart. But the sheer brutality of how the war was actually executed turned things around. The images of Vukovar and, most prominently, Dubrovnik being levelled were the greatest weapon Croatia had to swiftly build their legitimacy in the eyes of the world. On the ground, all they really had to do was defend and drag things out for long enough until the actual execution of the war by the JNA brought Croatia enough political capital for them to cash out. And while it was a close-run thing, for one, had the JNA swept through Vukovar and been able to knock down Osijek fairly quickly, there was really little to nothing to stop them advancing on Zagreb, and that would have been that. Croatia were able to defend what they had fiercely enough to expose the low morale of the JNA and arguably finished this first phase of the war in the ascendancy on most of its fronts. However, the side effects of events in Croatia would be to doom Bosnia. Next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, we go south to Macedonia to find that one more region was going to go peacefully. And we find out, and after that, we will then find out what was going on in football in what remained of Yugoslavia. So yes, uh, I first note apologies for this episode being a little bit late. Um, it is primarily due to personal circumstances. Um, just in terms of um, the amount of time I've had um, to actually sit and record, uh, which has been between uh, zero and minus one, um, as things stand, um, owing to um, an illness in the family. Um, so, yeah, apologies for that. Um, so this shouldn't, hopefully, um, be uh, too much in the way of reasons to delay beyond those sort of personal circumstances going forward so it may be till the end of this year um that is 2021 if you're listening to this in the future um 
maybe to the end of 2021 um, we are a little bit um, sparser than I'd like in terms of the actual episodes we're able to put out um, apologies for that um, but I will try and keep up with it in terms of providing the ad hoc um, podcasts for which I think the um, single country focus um, has seemed to me to work quite well um, but obviously I'm sure you can tell me um, if you don't agree with that um, if you don't agree with that you can obviously um, shout at me on social media um, on Twitter at H-Y-F-P-R-W uh, and if you know the name of this podcast you shouldn't really need to be told what that stands for um, but otherwise thank you very much for taking the time uh, to listen to this and I will catch you next time.